Thanks, Brooke. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. And as you, as Brooke mentioned, the the baby bump. There are also families here who are a part of our church family who are back for the first time with their babies. So welcome to you. Danae, who is singing, is here for the first time since having her kid, Maverick. And uh, there's others here who are back for the first time after having kids. There's a lot of new birth and new growth happening in our church. We praise God for that. And simultaneously, there's also a passing away. So some of you know Hazel Amundsen, who's been a member of our church for 71 years. Her and her husband moved to St. Louis Park in 1949 and started coming to this church not long afterwards. She passed away on Friday. And so uh, in God's grace, he's brought this church family together and we have babies being born and we have senior saints in their 90s going home to be with Jesus. And so uh, we, we, we mourn the loss of Hazel. She was just a dear saint of Jesus and a friend of many of you, especially those of you online. I know a lot of our seniors are are uh, live streaming rather than coming to the building right now, and I know that she'll be dearly missed by you guys, and so we're thinking about you, praying for you. There will be a private service for her here on Thursday at 11 a.m., and so if you knew Hazel and you were close to her, you're welcome to come and join us for that. Um, I'm going to pray one more time because we're at church, right? You got to pray. Ben prayed, Brooke prayed, pastor should probably pray too. Lord, we thank you for this church family, and I thank you for what you are doing in and among us. Lord, I thank you for all those gathered here in this building. Thank you for all of those at home live streaming. Lord, as Brooke already prayed, I just reiterate and ask that you would continue to do your work in us and remind us of your presence with us, whether it's here or at home. May you speak, Lord Jesus. We're listening. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in many ways, what you do shows who you are. What you do shows who you are. And we all have our different experiences of kind of struggling into that realization. One of the most formative experiences for me, and really it stretched over a couple years, was when my family moved from the Twin Cities up to Grand Marais. I was in sixth grade, and so we moved from kind of a Minneapolis context, very large, very urban, very diverse setting up to Grand Marais, a town of 1,300 people, half an hour from Canada, not very diverse, not large by any means, definitely not urban. And so I remember in sixth grade moving up to Grand Marais, and, and I think I kind of subconsciously started to know, I don't know at what age this shifts, I have a nine-year-old daughter named Avery, and she hasn't quite realized this yet, and I praise the Lord for it, but um, there's, there's kind of this thing that happens in your mind where you start to realize what you do shows who you are. And people start to judge you by what you do, and they start to identify you by what you do and put you into certain camps and think certain things about you based off of your actions. And so when my family moved up to Grand Marais, I was in sixth grade, and I was just starting to comprehend this. It was all subconscious. I hadn't thought deeply about it, but I remember my first day at school. We moved up in January, and so it was the middle of the school year. I'm in sixth grade trying to figure out how am I going to make friends in this small little town and I remember my first day at school, I wore an Emmett Smith jersey. Any of you remember Emmett Smith? He was a running back for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan, but I was kind of a bandwagon fan for whoever was winning. And the Dallas Cowboys were winning at the time. And one thing I knew about Grand Marais is it was a football town. Eleven years in a row, they went to the state tournament for football and won it three years in a row, right, in mine and my sister's heyday of being in school. And so I knew moving into Grand Marais that it was a football town. I also, at the time, happened to like football. And I wanted to be judged as somebody, I wanted to be accepted, I wanted to be welcomed in. And I know that, that what you do shows who you are, and so I wore the Emmett Smith jersey, and at recess I went out to play football with the little classmates, and in God's grace, I don't know if it was his grace or what happened, but I made an interception, and I returned it for a touchdown, and I was celebrated. The new kid who moved up from the Twin Cities, he's a football guy. This is a football town. I, I started to, to, to feel this acceptance. I actually overheard in the hallway somebody mention my Emmett Smith jersey. So I'm feeling good, right? What I, what I do is showing who I am. They're accepting who I am because I'm wearing a football jersey and I'm playing football. Well, a couple of years went by and I lost interest in football and, and I became aware of kind of these different subcultures in my school. It, you know, junior high and senior high kind of moving in and out of these different subcultures. We had preps, jocks, and skaters. Any of you remember those kind of subcultures and, and groupings? And I decided that I wanted to move from the jock 
crew, the football sports crew, into the skater culture, into the skater crew, and I wanted to be accepted by them, and so I had to start skateboarding because you're judged by what you do. What you do shows who you are. In fact, among the skater community, there is this phrase called a poser. A poser is somebody who dresses like a skater, who hangs out with skaters, who acts like a skater. If you don't know what a skater is, it's a skateboarder. It's this whole subculture. And we had this phrase that if you did that but you couldn't skateboard, you were a poser. Because what you do shows who you are. And if you can't skate, you're merely acting. You're a poser. And so for a little while, I tried to be a skater, and I learned to skate, and I wasn't a poser any longer because I could actually pick up a board and ride it a little bit. And then that phase kind of wore off, and I, and I started getting involved back in the jock community again after writing a song with my little junior high band about how we had this whole, we wrote this song about being in the locker room, and there's punks on one side and jocks on the other, and I'm not going to finish the lyrics because it's embarrassing, but um, then, then I shifted back into kind of the sports jock world, and I wanted to be accepted by them again, and so I started playing baseball, and so I showed who I was by playing baseball. And then somewhere along the line, it got a little more personal. This was kind of the transition out of my, and by no association, because I was leaving the skater culture and going back into the sports world, but kind of as I was hanging out with the skater crew, there was a lot of opportunity for me to do. My dad, I didn't mention, when we moved up to Grand Marais, we moved up there because my dad became the pastor. He was the pastor of the church. This is a small town of 1,300, so all the kids knew that my dad was the pastor. I remember, in fact, in the locker room in sixth grade, Lance Anderson, I shouldn't say his name because this is on Facebook. He's on Facebook. We're friends on Facebook. He asked me, he said, oh, you're the pastor's kid, so you can't swear, can you? I remember in the locker room saying as many swear words as I could think of just to try and prove to him that he can't judge me based off of what he thinks about me. And, and I remember kind of in those formative skater years, just doing some stupid things and some different things, and my dad's a pastor, and I grew up in this home that loved Jesus and taught Jesus and informed me to love Jesus and follow Jesus, and I did. I gave my life to Jesus at a young age, and, and so I'm wrestling with, who am I? And this all kind of came to a head kind of in ninth grade into 10th grade, and then it continued on actually through my first couple years of college, that I had to realize that what I do shows who I am. Am I a Christian or am I a skater? Am I a Christian or am I a jock, a football player, a baseball player? Who, who, who am I? You know, and you can be some of all that, right? You actually should be. But I had to really wrestle with, even outside of kind of that small little, like, you know, identifying by who you are, jock, prepper, skater, I had to wrestle through, who am I really? And am I showing myself to be a follower of Christ? Am I showing myself to be a Christian by my actions? I went to college, first two years, to be an electrician. And while I was there, God continued to work me over. As I wrestled with, okay, do I want to do the things that all of my classmates are doing in this tech school? There was a lot of partying, a lot of just having fun and enjoying the temporary moments of life. And so there was some allure there. And I thought, okay, do I, do I want to go with that crowd? Or there also was this little Christian subculture crowd at my college who weren't doing the bad things. I'm like, I don't, they seem to be having more fun, but they seem to be living more like Jesus. What I do shows who I am, who am I? And I was wrestling through that and really came to this realization that if you act like a follower of Jesus, it shows that you're a follower of Jesus. Because what you do shows who you are. And if you don't act like a follower of Jesus, there's no evidence that you're a follower of Jesus. And so that's what James, the author of the book that we're studying at, gets at this week. The big idea for today is what you do shows who you are. What you do shows who you are. Good works show that you have saving faith. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read our text for today. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in this way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the message, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God, may you cause this passage to be living and active in us today. May it stir our faith and produce works for your glory, for our good, the good of those who do, we do life with in the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Well, like so much of James, this passage is just really straightforward and easy and obvious to understand. What you do shows who you are. Doing good works shows that you have saving faith. It's easy and obvious, yet this passage has caused much debate and division among the people of God for centuries. Typically, people fall into one of two ditches when we talk about faith and works. We, we fall into a ditch of it's just belief. We've got to believe in what Jesus did. Believe in what Jesus did. It has nothing to do with our good works. We're saved by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and, and, and there's truth to that. We're going we're gonna to talk about this debate and controversy today. We're going to settle it once and for all. No, we're not even going to come close. I've, there's so many brilliant thinkers and pastors and scholars and theologians who can't figure this out. So you have no hope of me helping you figure it out this morning. But I do want to look at James and try and figure out what is some of this apparent controversy. And So one of it is you fall into the ditch of, of faith versus works. That we just got to believe, just got to believe, just trust what Jesus did. And then the other ditch is we got to do good stuff, do good stuff, do good stuff and prove our salvation or earn our salvation. It may creep into that on this one ditch of faith. It may become, we're, it may become cheap grace that we've received the grace of God through Jesus Christ and therefore I don't need to do anything. I'm saved because I have faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. That's kind of the, the, the wrong interpretation in that side of the ditch, the faith side. And over here, on the work side, it's, it's not just that Jesus has changed me, so therefore I get to do good works. It's Jesus has saved me, and I have to do good works, or I have to do good works to prove that I'm saved, or I have to do good works to earn my salvation. Here's the two ditches, and this is what really came, came out in the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, when Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant movement and the Lutheran Church, nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Chapel, he, he had grown tired of the Catholic Church saying that basically it was, they were selling indulgences. They were telling people that, that they could pay certain amounts of money and do certain things to earn God's favor and to get in God's good graces again. And, and Luther was a Catholic monk, and as he began to read the Bible, he began to see, no, that's not it at all. It's Jesus' work, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our place on our behalf, and we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's kind of the ring of the Protestant Reformation. And so Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the, to the wall of the chapel, and he, he started this whole movement, this Protestant movement, which out of that comes the Lutheran Church. It comes all of the Protestant churches, the hundreds of thousands of Baptist denominations, the Anabaptist denominations, the Evangelical Free Church denomination, which we're a part of, all these different movements. And within Protestants, you have Calvinism, this, this reformed movement that tends towards this faith side that it, it is Jesus' work that saves us, not our work that saves us. 
And then within the Protestant movement, you have Arminianism, which believes that, that, that we receive Christ. It, I'm not even going to get into the debate here, but there's all of these divisions and, and disagreements and this downhill spiral within the church. I mean, you have John Piper and R.C. Sproul warring with people like Greg Boyd and N.T. Wright. You have the, some of you know these names, some of you don't care about these names. Just know that there's this, there's these divisions and these debates and discussions within the church because on one side you can fall too far into the ditch of it's just what Jesus has done for me and I, I have nothing to do and nothing to prove. That's actually a statement that I use a lot at church. The Gospels frees us. I, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, I have nothing to lose and nothing to prove. But that can go so far as to I can live my life however I want. That's one of the problems with the ditch on the faith side and then the ditch on the work side is it's like when you hear somebody on their deathbed say I hope I did enough good that God will accept me living with that lack of assurance that that oh I've got to do good work so that God will be happy with me and God will approve of me and so these are the two extremes of these two ditches I think James is just picking up on his older brother's words Jesus himself taught John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. Consider his context. James grew up with Jesus. James heard Jesus' teaching, watched Jesus' life, saw the good works that Jesus did, healing the blind, caring for the leper, healing those with, with demon possession and releasing the demons and caring for the sexually broken. James saw these good works. He heard Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so I think James is building on this and picking up on this. Some people, the deeper you dive into this debate, they'll say that James and, and the Apostle Paul, they seem to contradict each other. Or Martin Luther, it's, it's reported that he wanted to remove James from the Bible or not study it because there wasn't enough Jesus in it. I think if we keep the context in mind that James was likely written in the, in, the, in the 40s. Paul was written in like the 50s and the 60s of the first century. James is a little closer connected to the life and ministry of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. I think James is just making some assumption to who he's writing that, hey, we all saw this is the church in Jerusalem within the first 10 years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. I think he's, he just knows. We all know the gospel. We all know what Jesus was teaching. And I'm encouraging this church to keep doing the things that Jesus taught them to do. And then even just 10 or 20 years later, this spirit of legalism and Judaism is coming back into the church. And Paul is referring to that. And he's saying, hey, you're not saved by upholding the Old Testament law. You don't have to become a Jew to be saved. You're saved by Jesus. And so there's, there's different emphases, Right? And often what we do as human beings is when someone emphasizes something different for certain reasons, we tend to categorize them and put them into a camp and we don't hear the whole of their argument. And so this is some of kind of what's behind this debate. Paul, just to bring you into it, Paul says, for we hold, in Romans 3 and 4, is really big on we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Not by works. But to fill that out, you could say, we're saved in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we're not left to live our life alone. Like there is works that will be produced. And that's what we're going to get into. But just to understand this a little more, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That seems a little bit different than what James says, doesn't it? And we just read it. James said, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James chapter 2, verse 24 a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And certain church traditions will grab onto that, to, to the emphasis on works, and they will build their entire theology and their life and their practice off of doing good works, doing good works. We've got to do good. Other Christian traditions will really gravitate towards this verse and grab onto it and say it has nothing to do with, with our works. We're not justified by what we do. And so be aware of these two camps. I'm sure many of you are, and you've experienced some of the negative effects of these camps. We'll address this a little bit more as we go, but what I want to do today is I want to consider James' words here. 
in the backdrop of how this has created so much division and debate within the church. And so let's get back to James. James chapter 2, starting with verses 14 through 17. I'm going to break this down into three different sections with three different summaries to hopefully help it make sense to us because I'm a preacher and you're supposed to break everything into threes, right? James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he's addressing that question, this ageless, timeless question, am I saved? Am I saved? If I died today, would I be accepted into the presence of God the Father? Would I spend eternity with him or would I be cast out of his presence? And so he's wrestling with that question that many of you have. They had it in the first century. Ten years after Jesus' life, am I saved? How can I know? How do I have assurance of salvation? He's, he's engaging that question. Can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? love that question. It's just so practical, right, James? Like, if somebody's in need and you have the means to help them and you don't help them, what good is that? That's not good. Verse 17, so that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. To summarize it here, James is teaching us that saving faith, it's planted by God and shown by works. You ask the question, am I saved? How can I be saved? What is saving faith? We need to be reminded that faith is planted by God. It's a gift of God. It's not something that we can muster up on our own. We can't produce faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God, and it's planted in the soil of our hearts and souls. And as it grows, it produces works. Saving faith, which is a gift from God, not something that you can produce on your own, is shown by how you live. Like if you plant a tomato seed, it will sprout a tomato plant. Correct? Some of you are going to be planting those soon. You know, we just came out of negative 20 degree weather, like stretch of two weeks of negative 20 degree weather. Have hope. Spring is coming. You're going to be planting seeds. And, and if those seeds grow, they will grow what you planted. That's what James is saying. If you have saving faith in God, in who Jesus is, you will start to live more and more like him. It's not faith versus works, it's faith and works. The two go hand in hand. And, and we need to be reminded that faith is a gift from God, but it doesn't come apart from works. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul writes, Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Faith is a gift. That's why we preach. That's why we proclaim. That's why we encourage people to read the scriptures because faith is a gift that comes from God. Why do some have it? Why don't others have it? I don't know. We don't have time to settle that debate. There is no settling of that debate. There's some mystery to this life that we can't fully understand and comprehend and unpack. But faith is a gift. It comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You can't produce faith. It's a gift from God. And this gift from God, it produces good works. Look at how Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something that you can do or produce on your own. You didn't place your faith in Jesus Christ because you found faith, you had faith, you mustered up faith. It was a gift from God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See how these two go hand in hand? I don't know why over the centuries we have allowed it to divide us so much because it's so clear in Scripture that they go hand in hand. And, and sometimes we, we tend to the pendulum swings too far and we put, one, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllabus. How does that phrase go? 
like in different seasons, different places, different cultures, we put different emphases in different places, and then we end up forgetting. Like, there's Catholics who are saved, and, and, and they don't believe that their works save them. They believe that the good work of Jesus Christ saved them, and maybe they just have a better understanding of that means that now we have to do some good works. Certainly, there's Catholics who fall too far in the ditch and think, I need to continue to do all these good things so that God doesn't lose favor with me and, and, and cast me out. But certainly, there's people on the faith side who say, well, I have faith, therefore, it doesn't matter if I care for the poor or not. That's not what James is saying. That's not what Ephesians is saying. It's saying faith is a gift from God, and faith will produce in you something that looks like Jesus. Back to James chapter 2. James uses this example of the poor. He says, if a poor brother or sister comes and they're lacking daily food and, and you say, go in peace, be warm and filled, what good is that? No, saving faith, it's a gift from God, but it's shown through your works. If you're not doing good works, there's no evidence that you have saving faith. God loves the poor, Jesus lived his life caring for the poor. And so if you love God and if you want to follow Christ, you will love the poor. Martin Luther himself, and, and he wasn't against putting faith in action. He wasn't against good works. He was, oh, I think he was overreacting, understandably so, to the Catholic abuse of it in his time. He himself said that God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. I love that. So practical. You don't do good works to earn God's favor. You do good works because your neighbor needs you to help them and to care about them. The example that James gives us, if somebody is cold and hungry and you have the means to help them and you don't, you're not living like Jesus. There's no evidence, again, not saying that you're not saved, that you don't have the seed of faith planted in you and, it, and it's growing and it hasn't fully sprouted yet. There's a process here to becoming like Jesus, right? Theologically, we refer to it as sanctification. It's the process of living out our justification. But, but if you perpetually just don't care, if there's no works, if there's no, no fruit on the tree, Jesus himself said that we will know a, a tree by its fruit, and so saving faith, it's planted by God, it's a gift by God, and it's shown by works. Next section here, verses 18 through 26, and this is the rest of the section. We're going to make two observations in it as we go. But just to summarize it, James is teaching us that saving faith is belief that changes behavior. So the first part, he gives us an example of caring for a poor and cold person, a hungry and cold person, by actually taking care of them, putting your faith into action. Now, it, it, it's the same idea with a different example. Saving faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ is a belief. It's this, this intellectual assent, but it's not just an intellectual assent. It's something that you believe that changes how you act. It's belief that changes behavior. Look at verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Even in the first century, these stupid debates were happening. I have faith, I have works, I have faith, I have works. And, and James knows it. He's like, these church people are so obnoxious. He's one of them. We just tend to get into our ditches and our camps and make accusations or assumptions about people because we want to emphasize this and they want to emphasize that. And James knows it, and he's lovingly trying to help us grow into maturity and grow out of this. He says, some of you will say, you have faith, but I have works. James goes on, he says, show me your faith apart from, apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's saying just belief as, as an intellectual assent or as an intellectual agreement isn't enough. You can believe all the right doctrines. The demons believe that God is one. The demons know that Yahweh is the God above all gods. The demons know that Jesus overcame sin and death in the grave. They believe this and they shudder because it's to their death and their detriment and their doom. So belief without change in behavior doesn't do anything. 
Verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He gives us these two great examples now of belief that changes behavior. Verse 21, was not Abraham, and, and now he's speaking to, to those in this church, there's both Jews and Gentiles alike. That's part of the tension here. Jews think that the Gentiles need to become more Jewish. Oftentimes, Christians think that new believers need to become more Christian. Like, especially in America, we have this idea that there's this, this kind of more Christian way to think and act in the political realm. And, and somebody can become a Christian, but as they grow in maturity, they will understand these political ramifications. Very similar here in the first century. Jews are thinking, yeah, these Gentiles, they can have saving faith in Jesus, but then they need to become more Jewish in their practice. And so James is using Abraham, the father of their faith, and he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, Abram, Abraham was called Abraham. God spoke to him and led him, and Abraham, in faith, left his country listening to the voice of Yahweh, following Yahweh, faith was a gift that resulted in action. It was this belief that changed his behavior. He, he moved, he listened to God. And in Genesis chapter 22, he offers up his son Isaac because he believed that Yahweh had a better plan and a better understanding of life, so much better than Abraham's plan and Abraham's understanding of life, that the son that God had been promising to Abraham, 25 years it took for his wife Sarah to get pregnant with his son Isaac, and once he finally had the son, God said, I need you to sacrifice the son. And, and Abraham had such belief in Yahweh that he was willing to put his son upon the altar. Those of you who know the story know that God provided a different sacrifice. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac. But his belief in God changed his behavior. He was willing to sacrifice his most prized possession in life. He left his country. It's this belief that Yahweh knows better than me, and so I'm going to leave into the unknown. I'm, I'm going to put my son upon the altar. Verse 22, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. I love that. He's called a friend of God. He has this relationship, this relational connection with God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is right action. And so the first step was he believed God. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Chapel, the first one was all of the, when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance, one of turning from our wrong thinking, from our wrong deeds, and to God, to him for grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, shown by our works. By what we do, there's this change in our behavior. Saving faith produces something in us that we cannot produce on our own. James gives us the example of Abraham. He didn't just believe God, believe kind of theoretically that, yeah, there's this greater God than all the other gods. And No, he acted upon that belief. And then the next example he gives, verse 25, and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute. This is, comes from Joshua chapter 2, an incredible story. If you've never heard it or read it, go and read Joshua chapter 2 this afternoon. It's amazing. This pagan prostitute lived in Jericho, this pagan city of people who hated Yahweh and were worshiping a false god and wanted to destroy God's good creation and people. Rahab was one of them. But she had heard the story of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and how he's powerful, how he's mighty, how he's the God above all other gods. And, and she says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, that she shares with the spies, the Israelites who have come into the land, she shares with them that I've heard about your God, and he is the God above all gods. And this belief in Yahweh changes her behavior. She hides these Israelite spies in her home, this pagan prostitute, hides these spies in her home because she believes that Yahweh is the most powerful God above all gods. And so because of that, that belief changes her behavior. It's worked out in action. She partners with God's people and helps God's people. 
James says, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by the other way? See, how, what would it have proved if she said, yeah, I believe Yahweh is the God above all gods, but I'm not going to help you. Well, you believe like the demons then. That's what James is getting at here. Saving faith is belief that changes behavior. See, we can believe in the concept of God, or we can believe the doctrines of the church, or we can believe certain things about God. We can read the Bible and believe certain things, but if there's no change of behavior, there is no evidence that our faith is salvific, that it's saving, that it's working, that it's producing Christ-likeness in us. Again, it may be an embryonic stage. Maybe there's just a lot of maturity and growth that needs to happen, but the assurance of salvation peace comes through the show of works. In other words, you can't know that you're saved unless you're acting like Jesus, your Savior. That's where assurance of salvation comes. It's not where your salvation comes. Your salvation comes from Christ, but your assurance of salvation comes from you acting more like Christ. This brings us into the last point in these same passages, kind of zero it down into uh, verses 21 through 26, and I'll summarize it in this way, that saving faith understands justification as both a declaration and a demonstration. Now, this is where some of this ancient debate has really gone, gone sideways and haywire, that some people will overemphasize the declarative nature of justification, and some people will overemphasize the demonstratory, the demonstrative, the action side of justification. And, and what we need to hold in tension is that justification is both. It's a declaration that you are forgiven, that you are righteous, that you are pure in spite of yourself, not based off of what you've done, but who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's the declarative side of justification, but justification also has a flip side. As you live like Jesus, you demonstrate that all of that is true, that you've given your life to that. That's what James is getting at here. And throughout our church history, we tend to divorce these two, and certain people will focus on the demonstration side of justification, and other people will focus on the declaration side of demonstration. It's like, uh, let me give you this example. When I was in college uh, at tech school studying to be an electrician, I, I moved to this town with some friends from high school, and we were all going to college, and so I thought, so we all thought, we all thought we were enrolled in college. And, uh, Somehow it came about that one of our friends, somebody thought one of our friends wasn't enrolled in college, but he had told all of us, and we're all living together, we're like sharing an apartment, and we were living at a camp for a while, and, and, and somebody was like, I don't think this person is actually enrolled. We're like, of course they are. And the more that we began to talk about it, and we asked him about it, he's like, yeah, of course I'm enrolled, why would you guys think that? And I don't remember why we thought that he wasn't, but we started seeing him on campus more and more. He's walking around campus. He's in the lunchroom when we're in the lunchroom. Like, oh, so we're all like, okay, yeah, he, apparently he's around. One of my friends went to the registrar's office and said, is this person enrolled in school? And they said, no. See, he was demonstrating that he was a college student, but he was not declared a student there. He was not on the books. He was getting no credit for sitting in classes and for going about his life. He was demonstrating the life of a college student, but there was no, there, he would have gotten no credit for it. The reverse is true. You can be enrolled in class and never go to class and never grow or learn the skills that you need to grow and learn. And that the, kind of that declarative enrollment is purposeless because it doesn't produce anything. So sometimes I think we separate these two and it's kind of like you're either declared as righteous or you act righteously and really the two need to be married. Speaking of marriage, so that's a, another great example. Brittany and I, when we got married 14 and a half years ago, we were declared married by our pastor, her dad, who married us. My dad, we had two pastors. We're 
a terrible mess. <laughs> they declared us married in the eyes of God and the witnesses here, and we signed the marriage certificate that went to the state. But for 14 and a half years, you better believe we've had to demonstrate marriage to one another. Like, the declaration wasn't enough. It was enough to get us a tax break with the state. And it was enough as a good Christian couple for us to justify moving in together and sleeping together. But it wasn't enough for us to grow in our love for each other, in our affection for each other, in our service towards one another. Our marriage would not be healthy if we said, hey, we did our work, we signed, we're declared married. Right? We have to demonstrate that declaration as we go. And so I think we need to be careful here is that oftentimes I think there's two type of people. There, there's the type of people who tend to, tend to emphasize the declaration side of justice. And it, it, this is just pure observation. People who tend to favor the declaration side of justification are people who tend to have their pride show in ways of more arrogance and can do it. They, they tend to have control and they tend to be capable. And so therefore, the declarative side of justice, you are justified not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done is really good for them because it humbles them. And they go, oh, I tend to be pretty proud in my own abilities and in my own capabilities. And so therefore, I love being reminded that I can do all the good works in the world and that doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. That's really good for my soul. I need to hear that. And then on the flip side, the people who tend to gravitate to more towards the demonstration side are, are people who live with a lot of like, shame and guilt and, and they don't have a lot of control in life and they feel like no one thinks that they have much to offer. And so therefore they think, oh, I, I can do good. I can do good works. I can contribute something. I have value. I have purpose. I have meaning. God uses me for his kingdom. My works matter. And that helps them to love the gospel because they think everything that I do actually has a purpose and a meaning and nobody else makes me feel that way, but God makes me feel that way. Do you, you understand how like, just different personalities will gravitate towards one or the other? So oftentimes we divide over our personalities, not over the gospel. This word justification, the biblical word, it has both the declarative and a demonstrative aspect to it and you can't separate the two. And so I want to remind us, church, that as we grow in the Lord, we are people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we're not left to live alone, that we do good works in his name. I want to just close down with a few passages that, that show us this point, this declarative and demonstrative nature of justification. Justification, there's this, this legal standing that God the Father, the judge, declares you as righteous and just, regardless of your faults. Amen? That's the declarative side. You know your own sin. You know your thoughts. You know your judgments. You know your assumptions. You know your accusations. And the enemy will remind you of those, and he will say, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. But the declarative side of justice is that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, none of that is held against you in the court of law. You are guiltless. Though you know your actions are guilty, you stand before God your Father as guiltless and accepted. That's the declarative side of justice, justification. And then the demonstrative side is, now because that's true, I get to serve God, I get to live for God, I get to do good works. And so let's look at a few passages here to just wind down our time with God's word. Look first with me at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 794 in the Pew Bible. This is one of my all-time favorite passages, and it shows us both the declarative and the demonstration side of justification. Joshua chapter 3. Uh, not Joshua chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the prophet Zechariah having a vision of Joshua the high priest is what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. The high priest is supposed to be the holiest of holy men. He's like the Pope. Or if you're an evangelical, Tim Keller. Or John Piper, or whoever, fill in your own 
John Mark Comer, whoever you think is the best. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You see the scene? Here's the, the holy man before God and Satan there to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. I love that. He's guilty. Joshua, the holy man, is guilty. He's the pastor guilty of sin. He's caught an affair. He's caught plagiarizing. He's caught taking indulgences. He's caught embezzling money. We don't know what he's guilty of, but he's guilty. He's, he's clothed in filthy robes, filthy garments. He is a sinner by nature and choice. End of verse 4. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and he clothed him with the garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's the declarative nature of justification. Though he is guilty, though he is stained, though he has done wrong, God the Father with Jesus, the angel of God, standing by him. I believe this is a... The, this is a theophany. Jesus shows up in this scene and they say, they declare Joshua, though he's guilty, they declare him to be righteous. Remove from him these filthy garments. Remove from him the stain of sin and put on him pure vestments, pure clothing. He is pure in the eyes of God the Father. We declare this guilty man as righteous. Look at verse 6. So not just declaration, though that feels so good. Oh, and I love it. Verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right to access among those who are standing here. You're declared righteous and now there's some required action. There's some good works. There's some aligning your life with me. Your belief must result in behavior. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 on page 983 in the Pew Bible. Again, this is Paul. Paul's not at odds with James. Notice this. Paul writes... And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. The declarative nature of justification. Though you were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. You are declared righteous. That wrecks me every time I read it because I know my internal highlight reel of sin. Because Satan stands by me to accuse. Filthy garments, filthy thoughts, filthy actions, filthy deeds. Who do you think you are? And here this is reminding me that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, I have been declared righteous before God the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. Church family, know that if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are in Jesus Christ, God the Father sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach, regardless of what you did last night, regardless of how you treated your spouse or kids this morning, or in my case, last night, as I prepared the sermon and lost my temper with a child. That's the declarative nature of the gospel. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See the declarative nature and the demonstrative nature, the demonstration of that declaration? You are declared holy, blameless, and righteous. If you continue in the faith, you prove that declaration to be true as you demonstrate the truth of it. One more, because these are so good. 
and our soul needs these. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 1. Paul, again, not at odds with James, just speaking to different crowds in different times who need a different emphasis. Paul writes, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the declaration of justification. Jesus became sin in your place, on your behalf. He who knew no sin, he who lived a perfect life, he who did all of the good deeds became sin. He took the the guilt and the weight and the shame of your bad deeds on his shoulder so that you might become the righteousness, the right living, the good deeds, the good works of Jesus. So the declarative nature in verse 21, but then look at chapter 6, verse 1. There's the demonstrative nature. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God in vain there means an inactive faith. If you don't act like Jesus, you've received his grace in vain, there is no proof that you're actually saved. And so let's keep these two together. That we've been justified, declared righteous before God by Jesus. And now that works its way out in our lives. So to end this sermon in a way that my father-in-law always ended sermons, let's ask the question, so what? So what? What does all that mean? What does all this theological, technical jargon mean? Well, this morning what I want us to do is take communion. Like we do every week at Park Community Church, we take communion this morning with this reminder that you've been declared righteous by the good works of Jesus. And you've been commissioned to do good works on his behalf. That's the gospel. You've been declared righteous by the good works of Jesus and you've been commissioned to do good works on his behalf. Every week when we gather at Park Community Church and we take communion near the end of the sermon, if you are a believer in Jesus, there's a communion packet in the pew in front of you for you to take when you feel led and ready during the set of music. It's there as a reminder of the declaration that because of Jesus' perfect life, perfect and sinless life and sacrificial death, you've been declared righteous. And you've also now been commissioned to go out into a desperate, dying, hopeless world and to live like Jesus to bring hope and peace and love and joy to a world who so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that I am declared righteous before God the Father because who you are and what you've done. That when God looks at me, he doesn't see me losing my temper with my child last night. He sees me as a forgiven son of his own who, who he has entrusted to raise my son in the way of the Lord. And so, Lord, I thank you that I and we who have placed our faith in you are declared righteous and that we've been given your spirit so that we could demonstrate more and more your righteousness on earth for your glory, for the good of those who we interact with in the advancement of your gospel. Lord, we need you, we cling to you, both for the declaration of our salvation, but also the demonstration of that salvation. Do a supernatural, miraculous work in us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take communion when you feel led and ready and then stand and sing as we close out of here.